Thank you for joining us tonight to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, to continue to worship our God today. If you'd like to turn to Jeremiah chapter 7 this evening, Jeremiah 7. If you want to use a pew Bible, since we're going uh, low tech tonight, if you want to just... Um, uh, turn to page 512 of that Pew Bible is where you'll find Jeremiah chapter 7. And all of our reading tonight should come from Jeremiah, even though we may be referencing some other parts of the Bible. Started doing a series on some of our Sunday nights, usually once a month, a couple of years ago. Uh, this is how long uh, it, it takes to go through the Bible since there's 66 books. Uh, but um, we started looking uh, periodically at one book and how that book's message prepares us for Jesus, points forward. And since we're doing Old Testament books right now, how that message anticipates Jesus, uh, prepares us for Jesus and getting the most out of our appreciation of who Jesus is uh, that we possibly can. So tonight we're going to do just an overview of Jeremiah and then focus on two themes that I'm going to share with you in just a moment. Jeremiah is called to be a prophet of God in the last days of the southern kingdom of Judah. The last generation that the kingdom of Judah would be there before their exile to Babylon. So throughout his ministry, even from his younger days, that exile to Babylon is on the horizon. Jeremiah is going to warn about it. Uh, he is going to say that it is because of their sin that they will drink this cup of the wrath of God. Is It's part of what that judgment is compared to in this book. More specifically, he points to different forms of idolatry and injustice as the all-encompassing terms that describe their sin. They have a culture of violence being permitted and at times not just permitted but even being applauded. They've even adopted in this time. There's evidence in this book. One of the most heinous things that they have adopted is the practice of some of the pagan nations around them of actually taking their own children out of desperation to try to appease the gods that they've adopted from the pagan cultures. And they've take, they're taking their own children and they are killing their own children. They're sacrificing their children to try to appease these other gods. It's going all just outside of Jerusalem, which is supposed to be the holy city. There is a valley there, and that valley would eventually be known by the name that it's given in Jeremiah, basically known as the Valley of Drums, because the drums would be beating there to drown out the screams of the children who were being sacrificed to the gods of the nations around them. They are a far cry from the people that God designed them to be when he gave them the promised land and even who they had been under some kings of past generations. Jeremiah is confronting kings and he's confronting the priesthood and he's confronting other prophets and he's confronting everyone who is there in Jerusalem. And, and in all of Judah who is there. Let's see some of his message to them. Because God's going to give them, as he's done repeatedly, a chance to see the error of their ways and to repent, to turn around, to correct that, to come back to him so that the exile will not come upon them. Jeremiah is going to preach one of the more famous sermons in the prophets. In Jeremiah chapter 7, it's often called the temple sermon. And Jeremiah is told to stand in the courts of the temple, a place where people would gather, a place where he would be heard, and he is to fearlessly stand up and confront the people with what they are, what they're doing, what's going on, and how God sees that, and how their trust is in all the wrong things. I want to read a snippet of this to prepare us for the tone of this book. From Jeremiah 7, beginning in verse 3. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, 
And here's Jeremiah speaking. Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not, do not trust in deceptive words, saying, This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known, then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered, that you may do all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it declares the Lord. Now I'm stopping right there. The message goes on because we're moving, covering a lot of ground tonight. I just wanted to give you a sample of what that sermon is. I'm putting all their trust in the fact that this temple is still standing. He's about to tell them, go take a little field trip up north uh, uh, a few miles and you'll find a place where that used to be called my house and my house is no longer there. Don't put your trust in this building here and think that just because it's standing that God is in favor of everything that you are doing right now. Don't think that this is a holy place just because you call it a holy Holy place. It's no longer a holy place. You've turned it into a robber's den. One of the first connections that you're going to see to the ministry of Jesus, Jesus is going to come into the temple of his time and he's going to say something very similar to some people who had lost the meaning of what that space was to be about. And he confronts them about it. He turns over tables of money changers and he quotes this passage here because what he was seeing in his time resembled what Jeremiah was seeing in his time. The focus had been lost. This holy space had been contaminated and the people were no longer the people that God had designed them to be. Now the chance here, as you picked up in the reading, is if you amend your ways, then God will not take you away. You've got a chance here. There's a condition. The problem is most of the people are going to reject Jeremiah's message. In fact, Jeremiah may be, up until the time of Jesus, may be the most rejected prophet that we read of in the Old Testament. We read of account after account where his experience is going to to be one of, we talked about trials this morning in Bible class, Jeremiah's life is a life of trials. He's going to endure ridicule, ridicule slander of his name, destruction of his work, imprisonment, death threats. There, there is even attempts to execute him that end up failing. There's a kidnapping that he experiences later on. He's actually the prophet who is stuck there up until the destruction of Jerusalem, whereas his younger counterparts, uh, Daniel and Ezekiel, other prophets, go on into exile. And we may say, well, isn't that better for him to be able to stick in his homeland? Well, he has to stay there and observe the last days of this suffering and to see the city that he loves being torn down. In fact, he, he's there when the temple is torn down. 
The tradition is, attributes the book of Lamentations to Jeremiah's writing by the inspiration of the Spirit. As someone who mourns, weeps over this city, Jerusalem, how great it used to be, and then what it had been reduced to. He witnesses these things. Jeremiah, beyond his experience itself, anticipating that of Jesus, in some ways it does. You get little snippets of that in different prophets of, of things that the types of things Jesus would go through later on, just amplified to a large degree in Jesus' experience. But tonight I want us to, to focus, or the many things we could focus on, on two themes from Jeremiah's preaching, two themes that anticipate Jesus. You've seen the situation of the time. You've seen it, it being what we might consider to be a, a hopeless condition. But there's actually going to be a lot of hope in this book as well. And the two ideas that I want us to focus on tonight that anticipate Jesus from the preaching of Jeremiah can be described with two words. Branch and covenant. Branch and covenant. Now here's where we're going with that. Let's start with branch. When you think of a branch, hopefully you think of new life new growth. Isaiah, many years before Jeremiah, had used this image to describe something very similar to what Jeremiah is going to, to say. In Isaiah's image, it was this, he starts out with this, this forest of all these mighty trees, and it pictures God as this woodsman who takes an axe and he knocks down these mighty trees who are really expressions of pride. Uh, and of oppression, of injustice of different kinds. And God has knocked those down and then you see in Isaiah chapter 11 that from this wasteland that used to be a forest of all these trees that have now fallen, there is a shoot that comes out of the ground of new growth and it is said to come from the root of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David. And then it goes on and talks about this righteous branch. Now some of that language is about to be used. If you want to go ahead and be turned to Jeremiah 23, we're about to see some of that. But as you turn there, I want you to, to think about what this represents here in Jeremiah. While he doesn't have quite the dramatic scene that Isaiah does of the trees being chopped down, he still uses this idea of a branch. A branch meaning new growth, the expectation of something that that branch is going to produce its purpose is to produce a fruit of some kind. Something is going to grow on that branch. So it's not just about the branch. It's about what is going to come forth from that branch. Its, it's design is to flourish and to produce fruit, to bring new life to the entire plant. The Bible is repeatedly going to connect this image with a coming Messiah, someone from the line of David. And just when you think that that line has been broken, God is going to show that no, he's had something in the works all along. There will be a kingly figure from the tribe of Judah, from the line of David. If this sounds like a theme that we're hitting on with all of these Old Testament books, it pretty much is. Something that is coming up repeatedly. At the end of Genesis, we see that idea from the line of Judah. We see that refined as time goes on with the promises that are made to David and to his household in the books of First and Second Samuel. And then you see this 
come up here of refining this even more to show us that continuing what Isaiah had said, that there will be a branch who is to come. And notice the ideas that are connected with this branch. Think about the situation that we said at the beginning was the case of what was going on, the culture of Jerusalem and of Judah in Jeremiah's time. And think about the difference between that and what these verses tell us about this coming branch. Let's read from Jeremiah 23. We're going to read just verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Someone is coming to reign as king who is characterized by justice and righteousness, the very things that are lacking in the time of Jeremiah. But there is hope. Someone is coming. Go with me a few chapters later. Let's look at chapter 33, beginning in verse 7, where you're going to see some of this language used again. Chapter 33, beginning in verse 7 through 9, and then we'll go down a little farther in the chapter. Jeremiah 33, beginning in verse 7, I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel will be re- and will rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me, And I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me and by which they have transgressed against me. I will be, it will be to me a name of joy, praise and glory before all the nations of the earth which will hear of all the good that I do for them. And they will fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I make for it. As bad as those conditions are that we read of in Jeremiah 7, God says there is a time that is coming when I am going to cleanse this nation from these these things. I'm going to provide an opportunity for them to be cleansed of their sins and those sins ultimately to be pardoned and to make a new name for them, a name of joy, to, to restore the name of Israel to what it was intended to be. Now, if you look at the ministry of Jesus, here's another thing that's going to jump out to you from the Old Testament. In every way that Israel fails, Jesus succeeds. Think about that. Israel is a people that uh, comes up out of Egypt, just like Jesus comes up out of Egypt whenever he was taken there as a child and is going to come back up. And Israel goes into its wilderness period. And yet Israel struggled through that period. They, they fell under temptation and they committed sin. Time and time again, they rebelled. Jesus comes up in his wilderness experience. He passes the test. And time and time again in Jesus' ministry, if it sounds like Jesus is going around and doing some things that resemble things that Israel did, but Jesus is doing them right this time, instead of the ways that they've been done wrong in the past... That's intentional. Jesus is the foundation of the true Israel. And it's an Israel that all of us have an opportunity to be a part of, Jew or Gentile. 
It's established in his name because he is Israel as Israel was intended to be. Now look with me a a little bit farther down in this chapter and we're going to see this language of branch again. If you think, well, what does this have to do with branch? I want you to go with me to verse 14 of the same chapter. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now notice how this language is going to be applied to those who are followers of, of the branch who is coming. In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. Look at his role again. He shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings to burn grain offerings and to prepare sacrifices continually. This book is looking forward to a messianic king who will have followers, who will establish a kingdom. Those followers will be the new Israel. And when we are connected with him, we are and submitting to him, his reign, his kingdom is built on true Justice is built on true righteousness. It's a kingdom where every person is valued in a way that was not going on in the time of Jeremiah. One more place where you're going to see this this theme of the branch who is coming, the, the king from the line of David that is played out. If you go to the last chapter of Jeremiah, chapter 52, we're not going to read from that. But it's maybe a strange ending to this book. The exile has happened. Most of the people are in exile, even though Jeremiah was taken there. But there is a future king of Babylon, a future emperor, who is showing some kindness to the last king from that line of David. He survived it. He's taken into exile. His name is Jehoiakim. He's also known in the Bible as uh, by the alternate name that he's called in the, the New Testament by the name Jeconiah or simply Kaniah back in Jeremiah 22. According to Matthew chapter 1 verse 12, this guy is in the line of Jesus Christ. He's in that seed line. He's, he's a descendant of David and he's someone who would be in that line that leads us to Jesus Christ. Now that's important because that, that was God's promise that, that it would come through the tribe of Judah it would come through David, it would come down through these guys and this guy is in that line. Now why is this significant? What appears early in Jeremiah if you go to chapter 22 it appears that Jeremiah had cursed had pronounced a curse upon that line uh, upon Jeconiah and, and his, his descendants that they would not uh, would not sit on the throne. Now what's going on here at the end? Because at the very end of the book of Jeremiah, there's this scene where the king of Babylon is showing favor to this king and he's inviting him into his, even though he's been in prison for a while, he's starting to show him favor, letting him eat at the king's table and and have special privileges. It's a glimmer of hope at the end of this book. You may wonder why does the book end that way? That seems to be a strange ending. The whole point is this, even though it it looks like that line has been cut off, that there are no longer kings in Judah, that that it has been cursed, either this is a sign that that message was really just intended for the immediate family of Jeconiah, not for the whole line, or maybe it was that uh, he was talking about the... uh, 
Later on, there's evidence in the book of Haggai, chapter 2. The prophet Haggai, uh, there's evidence that he may reverse this curse uh, with the grandson of Jeconiah, who was also part of that line, a man by the name of Zerubbabel. And that he would show that God once again shows favor to this line. The whole point is this, that curse is not a permanent curse. That that God is, is not untrue to promises that he has previously made. That there will be someone coming from the line of David to sit on the throne. God makes sure that that happens. Matthew shows us that line that gets us all the way to Jesus. He is the future king. He brings justice. He brings righteousness. And he will change hearts in a way that no one else has been able to. And that leads us to our next theme and our last one tonight. And that is the idea of covenant. We talked about Jesus as the branch. Now let's talk about this idea of covenant. Covenant is a relationship that is built on promises. You're going to see a lot of covenant language in Jeremiah. Let me give you some samples of that. I want you to turn back with me to chapter 30. Turn back with me to chapter 30 and you will see some of this language that is going to be used here. Some samples of this that goes all the way back to some of the same language that God used when he first called his people out of Exodus, out of Egypt as part of their exodus. He says this beginning in chapter 30, verse 18. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwelling places. And the city will be rebuilt on its ruin. And the palace will stand on its rightful place. From them will proceed thanksgiving and the voice of those who celebrate. And I will multiply them and they will not be diminished. Going back to some repeating some language he told to Abraham at the very beginning. I will also honor them, and they will not be insignificant. Their children also will be as formerly, and their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all their oppressors. Their leader shall be one of them, and their ruler shall come forth from their midst. Again, language anticipating Jesus. And I will bring him near, and he shall approach me, for who would dare to risk his life to approach me, declares the Lord. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. That is what we call a covenant formula. That is the language of covenant. If you see that a lot in the Bible, it's intentional. Go with me to chapter 31, verse 1, just a few verses later. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Go with me to chapter 32, verses 37 and 38, trying to show you how prevalent this language is. Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, in my wrath, and in my great indignation, and I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. But now go on and read a little further. If you think this is just talking about the Israelites coming back to the land of Canaan, that's partially what it's talking about. But it's not all that it's talking about. Let's read the next couple of verses. I will give them one heart in one way that they may fear me always for their own good, for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good and I will put the fear of me in their hearts 
so that they will not turn away from me. But now the real kicker. Turn back with me to chapter 31. That language of everlasting covenant that is there, God is going to take it one step further in Jeremiah 31. All the covenants that lead up to Jesus are really shadows of the ultimate covenant, the new covenant, the final covenant, the relationship that everything else has been preparing us for. It's been preparing the descendants of Abraham and the people who are not the descendants of Abraham to all be part of one covenant relationship with God. And here it is in Jeremiah, one of the most quoted Old Testament passages when you read your New Testament, beginning in verse 31 of chapter 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, and the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Now let's stop right there for a moment. There, it's not saying that any of these covenants were, were bad. They, they are good covenants. There are benefits to that. There, there is a, a lot of gospel truth even in those covenants. But they were all anticipating something more. We're going to see, we're just about to read, pay attention to the ways that this new covenant is different than what they had had before. Look at verse 33. Notice that they had broken that covenant too in verse 32. But look at 33. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying know the Lord for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now you may read through your Old Testament and you may see, well, the law was always meant to be a part of the heart. And you may read through the Old Testament and you may see, well, there is means of forgiveness for their sins. There's a whole day of atonement. There's a whole system that is in place. I think what God is saying with both of these ideas, because you look at these two ways that this new covenant, which is coming, is different. It's new. To use the word Hebrews uses, it's better. It is about internalizing the law. It's about a means of forgiveness for violation. How do we know this is supposed to be connected with Jesus? Hebrews 8 says it is. And other places in the Bible allude to this. This covenant relationship built on Jesus, beginning at the moment of his death, it begins by his death, and at the moment of, of his death, his death is what brings it about. How is it really different than the old? Well, think about it. Jesus is not just giving us revelation from God 
by speaking it. He was someone who was giving us revelation from God by being it, by living it, by being God himself in the flesh. That's something they hadn't had up until then. They had the word delivered through someone like Jeremiah, through someone like Moses, maybe through the agency of an angel at times. But they had not had the living and breathing word walking among them. When Jesus lives his life, teaches his teachings, dies on the cross, is raised from the dead, fulfills his mission, and then shares the Spirit of God with us, there is a deeper, more penetrating path now for that word of God, that message of God, those expectations, those commandments of God, the covenant stipulations of God to get into our heart now. So it's not just on the page. Now by the Spirit of God who is in us and with us, and by the life lived out by Jesus for us as we walk in his steps and as we are guided by the Spirit of God in those steps, this becomes internal in a way that, that was not available before. And yes, there was a means of forgiveness before this time, but not a complete means of forgiveness. It was always partial. It was always temporary. It had to be renewed every year. You know when you have an expiration date on something and you have to go get it renewed? And you know that date's coming up and I got to get a new license plate coming up. I got to renew my license. I got to renew whatever else. That's not how atonement for sin works. One sacrifice, according to the book of Hebrews, by one person for all time, sufficient. Beyond the blood of bulls and goats, what they could not do, could never fully take away sin. They could only postpone its effects on you. The blood of Jesus can pay your ransom price. And make a new covenant relationship built on the fact that my sins have been cleansed. His blood is called the blood of the covenant. It's the moment when it begins when he sheds that blood. And when I am in him, and I've been washed in that blood, and I become a part of that, then I am able to have a relationship with God built on his promises trusting in his grace knowing that I am forgiven because of the sacrifice of Jesus and as he leads me now as I walk in the light as he is in the light and this word becomes a part of me it penetrates my heart it's something that is on my heart where I just can't even contain it there any longer. I want to share it. That is what we have in Jesus. He is our righteous king.
king, the king of kings. And he is the one who brings the ultimate covenant relationship with God. Let's pray. Our Father, tonight as we think through how precious our Lord Jesus is from these words from your prophet Jeremiah, we pray that we will seek a deeper covenant relationship with you and we pray that we will honor Jesus as our king, as the righteous branch who allows us to produce fruit to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, if you're struggling with something, we're going to sing a song of encouragement. If you have a need uh, for us to pray about or to give your life to Jesus tonight, as we've talked about, be baptized into him, to be washed in this blood of the covenant, to begin your new covenant relationship with him, then please come as together we stand and as we sing.